Good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord. And those of you joining us online, good morning to you also. We're in the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 13. If you have your Bibles, we will take verses 24 through 27. The Gospel according to Mark, chapter 13. We will begin at verse 24. Would you please stand? But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds, from the Father's part of the earth, to the Father's part of heaven. Please be seated. This morning's message is entitled, After That Tribulation. And as I was walking up, I thought to myself, perhaps a better title would be Between the Lines. Because how do you read such a short section of Scripture and not have many questions? What is he talking about? What, this is cataclysmic. What is going on here? Four verses this morning because with remarkable brevity, Christ marks his return to us. He says, when I'm coming back, this is what's going to happen. And then he's going to move on to other things uh, concerning the end times and Israel, which we'll get in the coming days if we're still here. But between these lines are cataclysmic events great carnage, who can read it without being provoked to investigate more, I have a lot of scripture verses to read to you this morning and cross-reference, to, to cross-reference, unlike anything we've ever known. Will you believe it? Do we believe these things are going to actually happen? Isaiah writing about the Messiah in the beginning of, of Isaiah 53, he, he says, Who has believed our report? These are heavy things. Noah warned, and they scoffed, and they smirked, and they mocked him. They observed and possibly participated in the building of the ark. Still, they did not believe. They did not receive. Peter writes, he says, once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls were saved. Eight out of how many? Only eight believed. Peter writes again in the second letter, Noah, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. My point is that we preach these end-time things for a reason, not to satisfy the curiosity of our listeners or ourselves, but to preach Christ for conviction for the salvation of souls, to destroy the works of the devil. What better way to destroy what Satan does than to lead someone to heaven, to be used by God to save souls, and covering a multitude of sins, James writes. But they paid no attention to Noah's preaching. That ark of Noah was a pulpit for 120 years. Every sound that went into its construction was, was a sermon. 
Every tree that fell to build that ark was a representation of death coming. And still, the best they could do was scoff and mark, mock and smirk and not believe. And we are faced with the identical situations in our life. However, there will be more than eight souls who will be saved because of what the church does. Jesus, talking about this very thing in Luke's gospel in the 17th chapter, he says, As it was in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. You see the significance of reading about end times? Jesus saw it. In these last few days of his life on earth, he used a tremendous amount of scripture in everything that he spoke to these people. Every answer, everything he said was so packed with scripture. That was its foundation. He continues, Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, They bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Lot is a type of the New Testament church that is raptured out before the judgment falls. And then Christ adds this, even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Folks are going to see the ark being built through our testimony and our churches and our preaching, although that, not, that is shrinking drastically in these last of the last days as apostasy, apostasy continues to sweep the church. People in pulpits don't even believe the Bible, and pretending that they're Christians. I, I don't know how you do that, and I don't think God knows how you can do that either. The rapture of the church, the return of Christ, the great tribulation period. And that statement from Luke, Christ treats it all as a single event. He says, even so, it will be in in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. What will be all these end time things? He just lumps them in together. Even though they're separated by seven years, the rapture of the church, the end of the great tribulation period, and his return, all of this is part of the day of the Lord that goes into the millennial reign to its end, actually. We are preaching, as Noah, that the end is near enough. If you have not yet given your life to Christ, then you must understand that God expects more and he expects better from you. If you've not opened your heart to Jesus Christ, who died for sinners, then you're outside of God's will. But he doesn't expect you to stay outside of God's will, though he knows the end from the beginning. His great expectation is his great hope and desire built in love to come to him. Moses told the Jewish people, choose life. Joshua said, serve the Lord. Elijah said, how long do you halt between two opinions? Make up your mind. If you're going to serve Yahweh, serve Yahweh. If you're going to serve Baal, serve Baal. But make up your mind. You can't do them both. 
This was the message of the great prophets of our Bible. God gave them that message. He was, they were saying to the people, you should know better. And we're preaching the same thing to this day. You should know better. You know what sin is. You know sin is harmful. You do not like to be the victim of sin. So don't go pretending that sin is something to be trivialized and take the shame out of it. Sickness and death and violence, everything we hate in life is a product of sin. And people do not have to go through the great tribulation to end up in eternal hell. This is a message we are to preach. So what do I say to the unbeliever when he engages me about Jesus Christ? I have to be ready. I have to give the Holy Spirit something to shoot. No bullets, no bang. And that's why you are encouraged to stay in the Word of God, whether you are in the mood or out of the mood. Stay in the Word of God, and God will use you. As I read from Scripture about what's coming, all of us should again ask ourselves, do we believe it? Jesus had to tell John, we were just singing, the words that I'm telling you, they are faithful and they are true. John needed to hear that. They're so astounding, the things that were revealed to him. And the Lord said, write it down and believe it, because it's going to happen just like I said it. Now we look at verse 24. And Christ says, but in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened. And the moon will not give its light. But in those days, the typical of predictive prophecy. Prophecy is telling the future. There are different tenses of prophecy, but this one is predictive. Merging multiple events together to confuse the timeline for us. Not, on, not intentional, but that's what it does. When he says, but in those days, how much information is in what days? What is happening there after that tribulation? It seems, well, if the tribulation is over, why are things still going in a, 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 a catastrophic way? The sun will be darkened. I thought it was over. He's talking about the tribulation without him visibly on earth. That part is ending, and he's going to wrap the whole thing up. Unfulfilled prophecy has many silhouettes. There's just things that are just more, you know, like you can't make out the details yet. It comes, prophecy does, with revealing concepts too difficult to comprehend, since much of it doesn't even exist yet. When Christ gave his prophecy, so much of what he said was just foreign to these people. For instance, the New Testament church. When they said, Lord, you see these stones? And he says, not one will stay upon another. And he goes on to lay out what's going to happen. They have no concept of the New Testament church as we know it. Gentiles leading the church for God for over 2,000 years. So how do you give details about that? Because it doesn't exist in their heads. It would be almost blasphemous to suggest that somebody other than the, the chosen people would actually be chosen to breathe the light of the world. As Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. He drafts us. He recruits us. He makes, him li makes us like himself in that regard. And so in time, as event 
fulfillment stacks up, we get an improved understanding. Here, in this section, when he says, but in those days, again, lumping in the rapture, the great tribulation, and the second coming, all blended together, near impossible for them to grasp. What do they know about the rapture? They can't even believe in the resurrection yet. They're still struggling with that. That he's actually going to be murdered in public and then get up. But they're going to find out in a few days about that part of it. These predictions were obscure, but they will fade. In every age, the essentials are known. In spite of the obscurity of prophecy, we get the point. It's the details that we have to work out. And in those details is our message. It comes from so much work. Lining these things up. We look at the end time story and we find out that there is going to be horrific events on earth, but the righteous will survive ultimately in heaven, even at the cost of many believers' lives, as they will be in the great tribulation, believers being beheaded. God is very upfront about these things. And so his, to his disciples... For them, everything was centered on Israel in their thinking. They could not think globally. They just thought in the promised land and, and mainly in Jerusalem. How could he say to any of them that there are going to be radios and televisions and an internet? How could he say man is going to harness electricity, put lightning in a bottle? They would, they would what's a bottle? I mean, I mean just... It's beyond them. Uh, there's going to be microwaves and, uh, you know, central air conditioning and interstates and uh, plastic. And they could not grasp it. And so that's why many of the prophecies are in fragments and symbols. And as, again, event fulfillment takes place, the obscurity fades, we get a better picture. Even in the days of the Crusaders, there were things that they just could not understand about end-time prophecy, and so much of it was allegory. The allegory was an accurate application many times, but it was not the exact fulfillment of what is being said. And so he says, but in those days, starting from the rapture, which they could not know about, through the covenant with the seven-year covenant with Antichrist that is broken, and then his return. He says, after that, tribulation, and we, we pause there. We, we go back to verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation. Now, I know this could be a lot of information for some of you, but you have to start somewhere. You have to get your appetite going somewhere. And if you black out during the message, that's all right. We'll, we'll make sure that we, we get you out before the lights are turned off. After that tribulation, God finishes the great tribulation, which is judgment and wrath on the earth. That is what it is. There's no way to spin it and put a bow on it and make it something other than it is. That's why it is called the great tribulation. We never forget Christ has this way with understatement. He says things that don't sound so important or so serious or so dramatic, but yet they are. Everything he says is dramatic. And he is going to return with a dramatic display of his sovereignty. Matthew 24, verse 27. 
For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. That's pretty intense. Now, the coming of the Son of Man refers to the second coming all the time and not the rapture of the church. He comes for his church with the rapture. He comes back with his church seven years later. And so these events that we're talking about here, and, and when we, as we finish chapter 13 in the coming Sundays, we're mainly dealing, we're not dealing with the rapture. We're dealing with the great tribulation period, events leading up to that period, and, and then, of course, after that period. So Daniel's week, when he says after that tribulation, Daniel's uh, 70th week is uh, going to end, which will then issue in the thousand-year reign of Christ from Jerusalem. He says the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. So in preparation for this, what, am I, what, is, my, what is my mission? What is my objective as a pastor? Not to tickle your ears with fascinating things, though I hope it's interesting. The goal is always to equip, to build up and equip us for the work of ministry. And ministry goes beyond the walls of the church building and it goes into the world. How else are they going to get these things? Can you preach end times to an unbeliever? Absolutely. If you explain it, if you clarify The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. Visible cosmic disturbance, a dysfunctional universe, it seems, they're going to be faced with. He's quoting Isaiah the prophet. I mentioned his scripture is all over his words. Isaiah chapter 13, verse 10. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth. And the moon will not cause its light to shine. Now, there can be some very practical reasons for that because there's going to be a whole lot of war going on. And where there is war, there is smoke. And uh, the Lord used very significant, as I mentioned, a very significant amount of Scripture. Isaiah and Joel. Joel came before Isaiah. Joel writes... uh, So much about the end times, the last days. Joel chapter 2. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of Yahweh. And that's what we're talking about. Zechariah ramps it up. Way up. And this shall be the plague with which Yahweh will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. Now, he's using that word plague in the same sense that Moses' plague struck Egypt. These are judgments. They come from God. They are not coincidences. They are deliberate and they are divine. He continues, Zechariah, Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets, and their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. That's gross. I mean, this is nuclear or some variation thereof. Ezekiel 39. Now, okay, again, Ezekiel chapter 39, I believe, is Antichrist coming to power. uh, That little horn that struggles and exalts itself. And then the 39th chapter of Ezekiel's prophecies 
deals with Armageddon, that final battle which begins on earth and, and uh, is ended by heaven. We'll come to that as we go through this morning. But Ezekiel 39, talking about the, the end of the Great Tribulation period, which Zechariah was talking about also. Now listen to this. I mentioned nuclear or some sort of uh, biological or chemical warfare, something going on that we already we have these kinds of things. He says, the search party will pass through the land. And when anyone sees a man's bone, he shall set up a marker by it till the barriers have buried it in the valley of Hamangog. The name of the city will also be Hamanah, thus they shall cleanse the land. All right, so let's get those odd words out of the way. Hamangog, Gog, literally the multitude of Gog. Gog being uh, the, the spiritual forces behind the enemy of the Jewish people that shows up in, in the, the leaders who are uh, coming against Israel. I know, they go into, you know, Rosh means Russia and, and, and Meshach, and, and, and I disagree with them, and I'm not alone. You'll need to know that I'm not alone, unless you think I'm going off on my own things. I, there are times I like to be alone when I have a lot of ice cream, for example. I just like to be left alone. But uh, anyway, <laughs> remember, they did not believe the preaching of Noah. And it happened. Will they believe us? Well, it's really not up to us to get too much into that. What is important that we're listening to the Holy Spirit, that we're ready, we're armed and ready May, from Satan's view, may we be armed and dangerous in open carry. That we're not hiding our faith. We do not have a concealed Christianity right now. Some, some of our brothers do. and Brothers and sisters, they, they, they're being persecuted. They cannot be out in the open with their faith. We can. Listen, if they can be out in their open with their sexual perversity, why can we not be out in the open with a God who is the solution to perversity? It's a, a very basic. Everybody understands that. Even the unbeliever gets that. The armies of the Far East will mobilize in rebellion against Antichrist and the West. Antichrist will be very powerful. Uh, but at some point in the Great Tribulation, toward the end, at, at the end, as a matter of fact, the, the, the Battle of Armageddon, the military forces of the East will come. Uh, Revelation sixteen twelve. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up, so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. Now, Antichrist, as he's going to deal with this new threat, he is still determined to wipe out any remaining Jews that he can find and anybody who converts to Christ. But he will have to mobilize, he and the West, to meet this threat, nonetheless. And that will set the stage for Armageddon, where Christ will wipe out all of the unbelievers coming against. Well, there will be some survivors, but it comes down to ground troops in Israel, conventional warfare. Why not just send missiles and blow them to smithereens? Because of the technology, the Iron Dome which will even be further developed. Scud missiles, we saw Scud missiles going, you know, being fired by the, uh, Saddam Hussein, and we had Patriot, you know, uh, 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 missile defenses that shot them down. 
And so the armies coming against Israel are going to be very reluctant to fire these things into Israel lest they be exploded over their own heads. And so they're going to have to send troops on the ground. And that's why you have this conventional warfare in the Valley of Megiddo that uh, is, uh, you know, 50 years ago, or maybe 30 or so, you might have said, but it doesn't make any sense. With all the weapons we have today, why not just fire an endless amount of Trident missiles you know, into Israel? Well, there, there's the answer. There are ways to stop those things and force a ground confrontation. Revelation 13.4, this is speaking about how successful Antichrist has been in defeating the armies of the world. So they worship the dragon who gave authority to the beast. And they worship the beast saying, who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? You say, well, how can I use a verse like that to share the faith? Very easily. You say, listen, you see the human nature? They're so impressed with things they can see. Because they think that what they see is all that there is to see. But the just shall live by faith. And there's... You're either going to be gullible enough to believe there is this invincible figure coming to the earth who heaven says he is like an animal. Or you're going to believe God. So the armies of the world, of Ezekiel 38, that's Revelation 4, uh, 13, 4, who can make war with him. Uh, but. Here's an interesting thing. In Ezekiel 38, the armies coming into, Jeru into Israel are, de are defeated in the mountains. Whereas Ezekiel 39, Armageddon, they're defeated in the plains. There's two different war events going on. The stress that Israel will face during the Great Tribulation period. Uh, we don't have a lot of, at least I'm not, mindful of a lot of Jewish people uh, here where we live. You may be. When I lived in New York, there were many of them. Uh, and uh, opportunities to witness is what I'm, I'm talking about from their own Old Testament. And sadly, many of the Jewish people uh, don't aren't even familiar with their own Old Testament. Uh, there are many people uh, that have Christian uh, biblical names, New Testament names, and don't even know it. I mean, uh, just we cannot assume that people know what we know. And the only way we're going to get down to it is if the Holy Spirit gets us in front of them. And the only way, well, the question is, why should he do that if you're not prepared? If you don't have the fundamentals of your faith. So Ezekiel 38, I will, this is again before, seven years before Armageddon. Ezekiel 38, I will call for a sword against Gog throughout all my mountains, says the Lord Yahweh. Every man's sword will be against his brother. Now, Gog, Rosh, and Meshach are spiritual links to the forces behind the uh, human leaders that are enemies against Christ. Revelation 16, well, they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Verse 16 of Revelation 16. And they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. It's going to happen. 
And it's going to happen just like that. And there will be eyeballs that will be melting in their sockets. We won't be here to see these things, but we are here to preach about their approach. Abraham, uh, Noah was not there to feel the rain. He was inside the ark. It is coming. And then God led them in the ark and God closed the door. He did not have to feel the rain to believe God. Lot, he did not have to get hit with the fire and brimstone to get out of Sodom and Gomorrah. And my point is, we are preaching about things that are coming on the whole earth, which we will not be here to feel, but we are here to preach. And you say, well, uh, Noah got out with eight souls. Lot got out with four less one. He ends up with three, himself, his two daughters, who were the product of being raised in the schools of Sodom and Gomorrah. The battlefields will be global at this time in history, this great tribulation period. In that day, at the end of it, when Christ comes back, this is what he's coming back to. War will be all over the place. Jeremiah talks about it, Jeremiah 25. You see how many prophets we're drawing from? Isaiah Genesis, Jeremiah, Jeremiah, Zephaniah, Joel. It's all over the Bible. Because there's too much information to lay out in one book. It has to be filtered. filtered. Uh, Jeremiah 25, 33. And at that day, the slain of Yahweh. That's the judgment of the great tribulation period. Isaiah is, is, is very vocal about this also. Anyway, uh, back to Jeremiah. Uh, shall be from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth. They shall not be lamented or gathered or buried. They shall become refuse on the ground. The battlefield carnage that will be all over the earth. There will be too many dead to bury. And Revelation talks about the the... the the rivers of blood. Jeremiah is very clear. He says from one end of the earth even to the other. But most Jews would miss that in those days because, again, they were so uh, Israel-centered in their thinking that everything was, was about the Jews and about uh, Jerusalem. And you can understand it partly because God poured out so much care on them. But it was to a fault and in their understanding of things. Again, even these apostles, when Jesus is talking about things, they were going, huh, what? Uh, and they, they wrote down, nonetheless, what he said, even though they had not all developed a fuller understanding as of yet. Christ will not allow men to incinerate the planet and, and wipe men off the face of the earth. Thus, he says, those days are, are shortened. So what begins as a confrontation between the forces of the East and Antichrist of the West ends as a confrontation between heaven and earth when Christ comes back to the Mount of Olives and also at the same time wipes out Antichrist and his forces. The climax and the conclusion of the Great Tribulation comes with unmistakable signs that we're warned about so that we can warn. And the 144,000 Jewish witnesses will be all over end time prophecy in their preaching and people will be getting saved because of it. God will crush the devil 
and he will crush the signs and wonders that Satan was permitted. Whether they are false or true, they're going to be stopped. And there will be no mistaking who truly is God. And as we humanity enters into that thousand-year period in the very early stages, uh, there are going to be many converts. But as they give birth to more people through that thousand-year period, there are going to be many more unbelievers yet again. But we're not yet talking about the millennial uh, age. Verse 25, the stars of heaven will fall and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Now, you could allegorize that and say the stars are the leaders and things, uh, the, you know, the nations. And there would be truth to that. But I, I think that it is also uh, physical, this climactic end to man rule on the earth and the beginning of Christ rule on the earth. He stays when he comes back, incidentally. When he destroys these armies at Armageddon, he sets up his government. And we, his believers, from all history past, will be used by him as ministers of his truth and leaders of society. Humanity and human rule will be hemorrhaging when he arrives. They will be bleeding out. It will be action-packed, it will be. Again, the Lord's present audience believed it, though they did not live to see it. 1 Peter chapter 3. Now, Peter is talking about what happens after the return of Christ. He says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat, Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so Peter has lumped it all together himself because that was his understanding. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. The rapture comes without us knowing it. We know it's coming. We just don't know when it's coming. And so it will be through the tribulation period. There will be other events that will come and if, uh, unexpectedly. And if you are not ready, you are doomed. And Christ will get into that at the end of this message, not this morning's message, but his Olivet Discourse at the end of chapter 13. He will keep saying, watch, watch out. But when he uses the word, he does not confine it to those who will be living through this age he, can, he expands it to those living in every age. You cannot listen to Christ say, watch for this, take heed, and think he's talking about somebody else and not you too, on some level. Verse 26, Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Now he's quoting Daniel chapter 7. As I mentioned, he's just scripture for everything he's saying is scriptural. He is... He is taking the scripture verses and he is amalgamating them. He's putting them together. But to get, to be able to do that, you have to have an expansive understanding of what the Bible says about end times. Well, here's Daniel who tells us more about Antichrist than anyone. But that's not what we're talking about now. We're talking about the return of Christ. So let's read what Jesus is uh, has condensed for us from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, 
Daniel in his vision says, I was watching in the night visions and behold, one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancient of days and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one, which shall not be destroyed. That's the passage from which Christ is quoting to his disciples, but he's not laying it all out. He's got so much to preach. He's only got so much time before service has to end. He really didn't. He could just preach on and on and on. Uh, Paul did and almost killed a kid. (laughs) That's why we don't have a second story. Uh, I... I had attended a church years ago that was on the, would meet on the fifth or sixth floor of the building, depending on what was available, and I was very happy there were no windows. Uh, anyway, verse 26. Then they will, again, then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. The climactic end to human rule. Not the end of the world. That comes at the end of the thousand years that I just quoted from Peter. But listen, one of the great verses of 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, verse 24, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father because he is God the Son. When he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. See, those two Greek words, authority, excusia in the Greek, that is the, the, the authority, the right to do it. And then power there in the Greek is dunamis, the ability to enforce that authority. And so when Christ does come, not only will uh, he come and put down what the enemy is doing, he will stay and uh, preserve uh, what he is doing. Uh, the preliminary signs are, are done. There's, there's really nothing Uh, on the calendar waiting to happen. We can be raptured at any moment, and this great tribulation period begins. Uh, I'm going to open up a lot more, not uh, this session, but next week, because you, you know, then we get into the generation that will see it happen. When did the clock start ticking, Lord? It was at 1948 on May 14th, or was it June 7th in 1967? When did the clock start ticking to say to us, this generation will not pass until they see these things? Okay, I'm getting ahead of myself. That comes later. He returns to this broken and decimated planet because of men. Those who refused that he existed, those who insisted that man has somehow evolved itself out of slime or whatever. It's so incredible that very intelligent people can believe stupid things. It, it, is, it is like Einstein insisting that there are fairies. He's like, no, I put my tooth under the pillow. I'm telling you, I got a quarter the next day. I mean, and he's, he's doing all sorts of theories and physics and the other things. But this is how it is. Otherwise, intelligent people believe lies from hell because they do not want to accept the truth from heaven. This is what we face. And we need to tell them that's what's going on. Because they demonstrate that they can't figure it out on their own. This, uh, with all the wars and the famines, the earthquakes, the disasters, the pestilence, the 
persecutions, millions upon millions of people will die in that seven-year period throughout the earth. Unprecedented carnage. Isaiah chapter 13. Behold, the day of Yahweh comes cruel with both wrath and fierce anger to lay the land desolate and he will destroy its sinners from it. It is a purging. It is very serious. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, the Apostle Paul said. We do believe in the grace of God, but there is also a such thing as the wrath of God. And you would have to have a lot of black ink to edit that out of your Old and New Testament. It is that pronounced. Zephaniah chapter 1. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation. A day of darkness and gloominess. A day of clouds and thick darkness. I think we get the point. But did his readers get it? Did the audience get what Zephaniah was saying? He said, God has got this much power. Get right with him. Satan cannot do this. Revelation 11.10 And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them. Let me set this verse up. The people that Christ is judging are the people I'm going to read from Revelation 11.10. So we don't lose sight of who these people are. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them. Who? Who is them? That's the two servants of God whom the world killed. Whom the whole world could see dead in the street. Technology, of course, not available in the days it was preached, but is now. It says, they make merry and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. So when you say transgender is out of hell and human beings believing it are following a real Satan, they hate your guts for saying that thing. Because just like here in Revelation 11.10, you torment them with truth. And hell, who is the greater influence in them, doesn't want to hear it and will do anything to shut you and I up. So now we have a generation that is just ripe for the end times. And they are saying, what does Judeo-Christian values, what are they? Let's. Mark each one, and let's destroy each one. They love their guns, let's try to take those away. They love their children, let's try to pervert their children. Because Satan is in back of them, pulling, playing them like a fiddle. And they don't believe it. And the only response heaven has is to send us in. But you've got to be ready. I enjoyed my years working in the world because I had a lot of scripture. Because God was preparing me for ministry. I'd get to work hour, an hour and a half, two hours before work and sit in my jalopy car with a briefcase full of books and cassettes. And I'd study and study because I knew God called me to the ministry. I didn't have a church. Nobody liked me enough. <laughs> so... It took a lot of years, and, and still, and I'm not the only, other pastors out there have the same kind of testimony, how God called them, and they, they worked, and they labored over the Word of God, long before they could stand in front of a pulpit and teach the Word of God. Uh, 
why would anyone find these things too difficult for God to do unless their brand of God is man-made and itsy-bitsy? Because any man-made God is not only itsy-bitsy, it's demonic and is wrong. I don't find any of these things unbelievable for my God. In the beginning, God created. That's, there was nothing until he created. Why would I have a problem? If he can keep the sun where it is and the moon where it is and then have them dysfunctional later on and still preserve life on earth, why would I have a problem with any of this? The great glory of Christ's return will include the believers. Now, when he said this, when he said to them, then the Son of Man will return with great power and glory. Those apostles, they did not know that they would be with him at the time when he comes back, riding on horses like we're told in Revelation 19. It's just too much information for Christ to say everything. So he gave these time-release predictions and through his apostles and through him his own lips and we have them to this day and we're not to dismiss them again don't be intimidated by end time prophecy now now there are a lot of weirdos out there also um be very careful your source material you have to consider before you start listening to someone preach on end times what do they believe about christ and who he is are they loving or are they just judgmental? Do they have the Elijah complex where they say, I'm the only one, I'm the only prophet, all the others are gone? Or do they understand that you know, God has uh, always has a remnant that has not bowed the knee to bow? So if you're going to go online, you're going to buy books, be careful. But your goal should not be curiosity. Your goal should be, Lord, load me up. Put as many arrows in my quiver as you can fit. And I'll bring a couple of quivers with me. Uh, so that you can load me up with what I need to be useful to you. After all, what's your life for? What are you here on earth for? Um, what is worth living for once you come to Christ? The will of God. But the flesh won't participate, will it? The flesh resists you every chance it gets. Well, coming back to this, we're almost done. Uh, the disciples not realizing that when he says, I'm coming back, that they're going to be in that number with him. Um, it's just an amazing amount of information uh, to be given. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. Of course, the pronoun there is Jesus Christ. That's the feet of Christ. For in that he put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not see all things put under him. Why did he put all of these things under Christ? Because Christ is God the Son. That's why. It's not like he earned it or something like that. Or he is somehow lesser than the Father. It's just laying it out for us how it works. But he says, but we do not yet see all things put under him. And Christ is telling us here in verse 26, they will be fully under me and you will see them. And you will participate in this. And do you believe it? Or do you think that once you get to heaven, that's the end? 
There's nothing more here to do. That's why I think Christians should have a sign put up on their property. Uh, if raptured, we'll be back in seven years. <laughs> Leave my stuff. I'm t- if I catch anybody going through my garage, I'm telling you. <laughs> Verse 27. I mean, it's true. I, mean, I don't know about the part about my garage. I, I mean, that stuff's probably going to be burned up or all the death and destruction going on. But we'll be back in seven years, and things are going to be a lot different under new ownership, uh, for sure. Verse 27, I sounded very Southern California with that, for sure. Uh, that's not who I am, and no offense to them, but we've got to know our boundaries. Anyway, and when he, verse 27, and then he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest part of the earth through the Father's part of heaven. Nobody that belongs to him will be lost sight of, and they will not be out of his reach. That is the bottom line of that verse. We get that much, that he is in control, that he cares for his people. The elect here are essentially the Jews, but also any other converts. They're not going to be left out. He's not going to come to earth and say, well, you know, it was all about Israel anyway, not you Gentiles. Satan comes along and says, you see how much care God has in the Old Testament for Israel? He doesn't care much about the Gentiles. That's Satan talking. We know better. Surviving Jews will be scattered throughout the globe when he arrives. 144,000 will likely still be in operation. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 12, he will... Set up a banner for the nations and will assemble the outcast of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Primarily, it is Israel, but not at the neglect of tribulation converts. They will have their assignments too. It's just not written down for us in Scripture because it would create a whole other world of discussion amongst the rabbis. That would not be edifying. They, look, the, they, the, the Jews were entrusted with bringing light to the Gentiles. And they never really did it. And we'll cover that in one of the sessions coming up. Where how, until the New Testament came, if you wanted to know about the God of creation, you had to go to a Jew. And now it's switched. Oh, so we'll come to that later. Anyway, almost finished here. Revelation 19.15, this is the judgment coming. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And that is pretty straightforward, that he is God the Son. And Jews and Gentiles will be the nucleus of the population to launch the millennial age where death will be almost non-existent. So how many people will be born and populate the planet? And and there will be uh, climate change, but it will not be man-made. It will be Christ-made. The man-made climate change will be through the exchange of nuclear weapons and other such things. But Christ will change the landscape of the planet. And uh, I've not yet picked out where I, I'm going to live because I'll, it won't be my choice. <laughs> Revel, uh, Romans 11, and also, uh, pardon me, 
And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. You see, that's the outcome of this outpouring of wrath and judgment. And anyone who says, well, you know, the dominion theology, kingdom theology, that the church has become Israel and Israel is God has done with them. How do you account for such a verse? Zion is very geographical. It's very clear. Uh, it is the Jewish people. God never stops loving uh, so long as there is life. Uh, if you believe him, incidentally, one close with this. When you study prophecy, it is emotional. It, it draws you in. You feel good about it because one thing is pronounced more clear than anything else. God is in total control. And our soul wants that so much. And he says, hang in there. Right now you don't see me in control. That's what we read from Hebrews. But I am in control. Let's pray. Father, since I'm doing the praying, I can say that was really hard. But I leave it to, to you, as we always do, to sort matters out in the hearts of the individuals who are exposed to your scripture and whatever movement of the Holy Spirit that uh, comes upon their heart and their mind through such a time as the ministry of the word. To train and to equip for the edification of the body of Christ, for the salvation of souls. This morning, if you've been listening and you know you're not right with God, and you know, because you may have heard me say it, that God expects more from you. God expects more than unbelief from people. He expects that they will hear his word and turn to him. And so he has said, faith comes by hearing. And hearing the word of God. And if you are ready to step up so that you can enter into heaven, then make this prayer in earnest and don't deceive yourself. Mean it. You say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I have broken your laws and I come to you. And what I know is that you're moving in my heart and I surrender. I give my life to you right here, right now. And I ask that from this day forward, not only would I be the recipient of your salvation as my Savior, but that I would pursue obedience to you in love because you are my Lord. And now, Father, if anyone has made this prayer this morning, may they never be ashamed of it. And may they act on it very quickly. May they make their confession known. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.